Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, through to chapter 3, verse 6. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them, and I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, the letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Righto. Despite Paul's anguish in, in dealing with the Corinthian church, In this part of his letter, he just spills over with praise to God. Um, So let's set the scene. At this point in his letter, Paul is reminiscing about a time he had a stopover in Troas. And that was a particularly anxious time for him. He he was waiting there in Troas, hoping that Titus would catch up with him there. Uh, Earlier, he'd sent Titus on to Corinth to collect the offering, which was going to be then forwarded on to Jerusalem. But I, think, I don't think he's so worried about getting the offering. I think he's really itching to hear back from Titus a bit of a report on how things are going in Corinth because he'd not long sent them this severe letter and he wanted to know, well, how are things going there? I think it was a bit of a case of do they love me or do they love me not? But alas, Titus didn't arrive in time and so even though the people were responding to the gospel there in Troas, Paul's spirit wasn't at all at rest. Um, I think what that probably meaning is that he wasn't in a very good personal state for preaching. He was just anxiously waiting to hear back from Titus about how things had gone in Macedonia and what the people in Macedonia were thinking of him. And and but oh, sorry, uh, Corinth. But Titus must have gone on to Macedonia, and so Paul did the same. All right. So at this point. Paul was filled with anxiety. He's got this unsettled spirit. He's got all this angst going on in Corinth. People are trying to pull him down and they're trying to undermine his position as an apostle. But despite all this, he just bursts into praise. He says, but thanks be to God. Uh, That word but 
we always, whenever we see the word but, it means we've got to realise that that means despite everything that's just been going on that we've just been hearing about. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. All right, so when a Roman army won a great victory, it was quite common for them to hold a great triumphal procession. Uh, most often it would be the emperor who led the way and the generals and the soldiers would follow on behind in, in their great victory. And they'd burn incense to worship their gods and they'd have this great old celebration. But at these parades, not, not everybody was quite so excited by these events because within that procession would also be paraded the POWs, the prisoners of war. If the defeated king managed to survive, he'd probably be there in chains, or if he hadn't survived, they'd probably have his head on a stick. And many of the POWs at the end of the parade would be either executed or sold as slaves. And so for those who are on the winning side, it was a parade of, of life and victory but for those who'd been defeated, it, it was the very smell of death. And this is the imagery that, that Paul is, is um, using here. God leads us in his victory, right? Now, I've got to be really clear about this. This is God's victory. Um, we shouldn't see it as our own victory. It's God's victory. Um, because at the point that God won this victory, we were actually enemies of God. Right, now, how did God win this victory? This victory came about through Jesus Christ and through his death and resurrection. But through Christ, through his resurrection victory, those who put their faith in him and yield to him as Lord, well, they're not enemies of God any longer. They become his loyal subjects. And so we can actually join in in the triumphal parade. Even though we were enemies of God, the victory that God has won, we can be part of that victory. And, and Paul says, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Now, he's talking about preaching the gospel. Right? So if you think about that parade, with, you've got the loyal subjects proclaiming the great victory of the king. Wherever Paul and Titus and his fellow missionaries went, the fragrance of knowing God was being spread everywhere. Everywhere they went, they preached the gospel. And whenever the gospel was being preached, people would know about Christ. Now, to those who respond to the gospel, those who believe in Jesus, um, to those who are being saved, the aroma of the gospel is it's like a sweet smell. It's the message that gives us life. He actually uses the phrase life to life, right? It's a full life now. Life is pretty empty without God in it. Uh, we are spiritually dead without God in our lives now. And so knowing Christ, having life in Christ means that we are filled with the Holy Spirit and, and we have a full life now, but it's also a life which goes on in eternity. And so among those who are being saved, the gospel is the sweet smell of life to life. But sadly, for many, when they hear the gospel, it's not the smell of sweetness. It isn't the smell of life. 
Because when they hear the gospel, their hearts are hardened and they reject Christ. And for them, the gospel becomes the putrid smell of death. And we've all seen this happen in people, haven't we? You know, when, when some people hear the gospel, it's just the best news ever. Woohoo! Yeah, oh, yeah, that's great news. But that's not the most common response. For the vast majority, when they hear the gospel, they hate it. It's irrelevant to them. They, they don't want to know about it. Now, I don't even know how, how some people who say that God doesn't exist, I don't know how they can hate something so much that they don't think exists. Um, now, Paul refers to these as those who are perishing. In my shed, I've got a tin cupboard, as most blokes do. Um, and in that cupboard, I've got a bunch of various spare parts and a few specialty tools in it. And there's a section in that cupboard um, where I keep push bike parts. And because I live in St George, and anyone who's ever rides push bikes in, uh, in St George knows about our goat head problem. Um, wherever Caltrop grows, we get these goat heads, which aren't real good on push bike tyres, and so that means I carry a number of spare tubes. Now, it's really important that when I take a spare tube out to use it, that I always get the oldest one. Uh, because over time, tubes perish. All right, so you might think, hmm, I need a tube, so you're going to get this shiny box out of the cupboard. You don't know how long it's been there, but it might have been there for, for five or six years. And you open it and you pull the tube out and it's all perished. And you pump it up and psh, air just goes everywhere. Just over time, it gets destroyed. And without Christ, that's the human condition. People might think, well, there's really nothing, nothing to... There's no problem with me, I'm just a human, it's all good. And everything might seem fine, but we are perishing. And eventually we will be destroyed. That's the human condition. Those who are with Christ are saved. Those who are without Christ are perishing. But, but the Greek word here is even stronger than this, uh, a polymenois. Um, it's about death. It's about destruction. Right? So in, in Revelation, we hear about Apollyon, the destroyer who brings death, and, and that's where that word comes from, is all coming from, is from Apollyon. It's about death, it's about destruction, which is why he says that among those who are perishing, the gospel is a fragrance from death to death. So before a person hears the gospel, they're not saved, but then when they do hear the gospel message, um, the, the, the gospel message is that without Christ, they will perish. But, but their heart hardens and they reject Christ. And so what they're doing is they're confirming their destiny. Among those who are perishing, the gospel is the fragrance from death to death. The gospel, the pure gospel, the pure good news of Jesus isn't palatable to many. And we, as Christians, we need to face that. You know, because we think it's such great news, we, we just can't understand why other people don't, don't all... Uh, why isn't everybody rushing to be saved? It's good news. But it's not such good news to most people. And so the gospel message that is preached, it actually becomes a test of the genuineness of the preacher. What Paul is saying here is even though the gospel is good news... 
the true gospel is pretty much on the nose for most people. And so the temptation for, for many preachers, not only today, but way back then, the temptation for preachers right throughout time has been to change the gospel or to not preach the full gospel. It's to make the gospel more listener-friendly for those who are self-absorbed and self-centred. The temptation is to remove the offence of the gospel. Now, Paul says, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. You know what a peddler is, hey? It's somebody who's trying to sell stuff to make a profit. And so the image that he's conjuring up here is about preachers who might be in it for the money, they might be in it for the glory. Uh, being a peddler of God's word gives the implication of a bit of deceptiveness going on and some not so pure motivations, greedy motivations perhaps. The temptation, you see, is just to tweak the gospel a little bit so that it's not quite so offensive, to just change the gospel a little bit so that it's more appealing or so that it doesn't sound too judgmental or so that people won't be put off by having to repent of certain actions or certain lifestyles. Some people are tempted to, to just make it sound a bit more inclusive so that it doesn't exclude all of those other religions or whatever. And some people might concentrate more on the benefits of the listener than on the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so it come, becomes about, oh, just change a bit so that it's not the aroma of death to those who are perishing. And there are plenty of, plenty of peddlers of God's word around even today. Pastors who tell half-truths to try and build their church. Preachers who redefine what repentance is so that it's, turning to Christ isn't quite so costly. And there's those who will present a wide, easy way to get to God. And their churches are growing and growing and nobody, and, and it's, oh, great, isn't this good? Our churches are growing. But the problem is they're taking this wide, easy path when Jesus told us that the way of being a disciple of Jesus is the narrow, hard road. But Paul and his missionary mates, they're not like that. They're not shameless peddlers of God's word. He says, we're men of sincerity. He tells us they're commissioned by God. And in the sight of God, he says, we speak in Christ. Now, if you can think back to the introduction that we had last week and the week before, in Corinth, it seems like there was some pretty nasty sorts of antagonists there. People who had come in from out of town, claiming to be apostles, but teaching the false gospel. And Paul sarcastically refers to them later on in the letter as the super apostles. And Paul's comparing himself here to them. Right? They're just peddlers of God's word. They're deceptive. They're in it for their own gain. They're trying to build their own kingdom here. It's not about building the kingdom of God. But he says, but we're not like that. We're sincere. Right? We didn't just decide for ourselves that we're going to be apostles. We didn't just hang up a shingle and go, which says, Paul, apostle of God, I'm starting business for myself. He says, God chose us. 
God called us. God commissioned us. And Paul is very aware that, that every time they preach the gospel, the one who's keeping an eye on them, the one who is checking on the message that they are preaching is God. He says, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Now, as a preacher and as a Bible teacher, what I teach matters. It matters a lot. You know, in churches, we talk about having oversight, right? Somebody who keeps an eye on things, makes sure everything's happening as it should, keeps an eye on, on the preachers, makes sure that the message that's getting preached is the right message. Who may, people who make sure that, that the message that's getting preached is the full gospel and that it's not being watered down. Do you know what motivates me to preach the gospel and to keep the gospel true? Well, firstly, I think the main thing is love. I love Christ and I love his gospel. As I hear the gospel, I, I love the gospel. Why would I want to change it? Yeah, I know that some people don't like it, but I love the gospel. I can't change it. Secondly, like Paul, I speak in Christ. I don't have any great natural talents or abilities. What I'm doing here, I'm doing in Christ. Christ has brought me into his ministry. And I honour that. And thirdly, it is with fear and trembling that I preach the word of God. Because every time I preach... God is listening and God is watching. You know, I think I've said to you before that when I preach, Robin is my harshest critic. Uh, she tells me very quickly on the way home whether um, I've stumbled or mucked things up a little bit. Um, but actually, I think there's a, more, there's a better critic I have, and that's God. God is watching everything we do. Now, this is a very heavy responsibility. In verse 16, Paul asks the question, who is sufficient for these things? And that's a valid question to ask. Even those who are perishing ask questions like that. Um, at the moment, the media have been keeping a, a pretty firm eye on Israel Falal. And every time he preaches something that sounds a little bit, that reminds people about judgment. Um, they're very quick to, to say, oh, this fellow is terrible. But, but what are the sorts of things people respond with? You know, what gives you the right? Who are you? Right? So they're asking a very similar question here. Who are you? Who do you think you are to be preaching stuff like this, telling me that I'll be judged by God? And let me tell you that for myself as a preacher and as a Bible teacher, I often ask myself, this question. Who am I? What gives me the right to preach the gospel? What gives me the right to warn sinners about the coming day of judgment and to offer them the good news that Jesus will save them? What gives me the right to interpret difficult passages of scripture and to try and help people to understand them by explaining it? As Paul asks the question, who is sufficient for these things? That's the question I ask. Who is sufficient for these things? And it's not until we get into chapter 3 that Paul gives us the answer. 
in ourselves, we are not sufficient. Our sufficiency is from God. But we're jumping ahead of ourselves here. We're still in chapter 2. So let's go back. All right, so Paul has said we're not peddlers of God's word, right? So we're not deceitful and greedy. We're men of sincerity. We're commissioned by God. We speak in the sight of God, right? So God's keeping a check on, on us. But then he sort of realises a bit how that might sound, a bit like he's blowing his own trumpet. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Right? Are, we, are we blowing our own trumpet again? Right? So what he's doing is he's, he's putting out his credentials, explaining to them why he should be trusted. How can we tell if a preacher or a teacher or a pastor is genuine? How can we tell if they truly are men of sincerity? How can we tell that they're not peddlers of God's word, that they're not deceitful, that they're not telling us half-truths, that they're not in it for the power or the prestige or the money? How can we tell that somebody is genuinely commissioned by God or whether this is someone who's just taken it upon themselves? And how will we know if they really are preaching the true gospel? Well, Paul says... Do we need letters of recommendation to you or from you? No. He doesn't need a letter of recommendation. He says to them, you are our letter of recommendation. You see, a reference from somebody else doesn't prove that somebody is going to be sincere. It doesn't prove that they're called by God. It doesn't prove that they're going to preach the gospel truth. Nor does somebody's qualifications. Right? Somebody could earn a bachelor's degree in theology or a master's or, or, or a doctorate. None of that is going to prove that they are sincere. None of those qualifications prove that they are called by God or that they will preach the gospel truth. In fact, sometimes it goes the other way around. Some people are very highly academically qualified but don't preach the gospel truth. And certainly somebody's Facebook profile or LinkedIn profile or the who's who of somebody isn't going to let us know whether whether they are commissioned by God or not. How can we tell the genuineness of a preacher? Well, we look for the fruit. Jesus said, by their fruit you'll recognise them. In Matthew chapter 7, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognise them by their fruits. And biblically, the fruit that he's talking about here is the fruit of the Spirit. He's talking about the content of our character. He's talking about a life that's being changed and transformed to become a life of righteousness. That's what Jesus taught us in in Matthew. 
But Paul takes this one step further here. And he's saying, if you want to assess the calling of a preacher, if you want to assess, are they sincere? Are they called by God? Well, what's the fruit of their preaching? What's the fruit of the congregation? Paul says to them, what's the proof of our calling? Look at you. You're our letter of recommendation. You show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Transformed lives. There's the evidence of the calling. Now, we're obviously not talking about how just one or two people in a congregation are going with God. Um, no matter how godly the preacher, no, no matter how good the message that's being preached is, is some people are always going to rebel against that and rebel against God and drift further away from God. And likewise, no matter how bad the preaching is, there's going to be some people who in their own relationship with God are growing and growing with God. But what he's talking about here is, is how is the church as a whole going? Right? Through the preaching of that pastor, is that church growing closer to God or is it getting further away? Are they holding firm to the gospel or are they wavering? Are its members becoming purer and holier or are they embracing sin and taking on the ways of the world? Often a quick, easy test of this sort of thing is, what's their language like? Right? Are they the sorts, uh, is there, are their words getting more holier or more profane? Are they a people who, who personally witness for Jesus or are they keeping their faith really private? Is it a church who, who are beginning to love the unlovable and, and care for the poor and the sick or are they focusing on themselves and their own financial well-being? Is that church a reconciling community of Christ? Are they loving and forgiving each other? Are they journeying with one another? Is that church a church whose love for God and their love for God's word is growing and growing? Are they someone who trusts God's word? Are they somebody who always, they're suspicious of it, pull it to bits? Are they a church who just love to hear good biblical teaching or does God's word take a back seat to entertaining stories and a bit of a study on philosophy or sociology? How a church is growing closer to God or how a church is getting further away from God says a lot about a pastor. But here's the thing. When a church is growing spiritually, it's not because the pastor's great. It's entirely the work of God through his Holy Spirit. You know, I've, I've said this to, to some of you before, being at pastors are a really tough gig uh, because, you know, if, if everything's going really well, God's done it, right? God is great. God gets the glory. God's done it. But if things aren't going so well, you know whose fault it is, don't you? It's not God's fault. 
It's the pastor's fault and the congregation's fault. It's a bit of a thankless task, really. But that's the way it's supposed to be. If anything good is happening, it's God who's doing it. When a church is growing spiritually, it's not because the pasture is great. It's entirely the work of God through his Holy Spirit. And so there's no room for boasting in a church. And Paul says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, that paragraph, there's a lot packed into that paragraph, and we're not going to unpack it all today. Um, It's sort of like the launching pad for what we're going to talk about next week, about the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant, the the old letter of the law and the new way of the spirit of Christ. So most of that paragraph we're going to talk about next week. But I really did need to include this paragraph to finish up today. How are any of us sufficient? Now, as I wrote this message, I obviously considered this from the perspective of myself. How am I sufficient to be a pastor? How am I sufficient to be a teacher? But you might be asking yourself the question, what makes me sufficient to be a Sunday school teacher? What makes me sufficient to be an RE teacher or a worship leader or an elder? What makes me sufficient to lead a Bible study or to share the gospel with an unbeliever? What makes me sufficient to to have the ability to be able to argue the validity of the Christian faith against somebody who's arguing against it? Our sufficiency, your sufficiency, my sufficiency is from God. I guess something that I've always realised is those whom God calls, God equips. And while we remain in God and obediently hold to him and his word and love him, he's sufficient. There will be times that you feel that you're not worthy. Like me, you'll feel I'm not worthy. I'm not qualified. I'm not smart enough. I don't know enough. I'm too sinful. I'm not holy enough. And I want to affirm you in all of that. You know, uh, in most churches and certainly socially these days, it's all about trying to build up a person's self-esteem. I actually think when it comes to God, most of us have got way too much self-esteem. It's not about self-worth or self-esteem. I want to affirm you that you are right. You are not worthy. You are not qualified. You are not smart enough. You do not know enough. You are too sinful. You are not holy enough. And neither am I. I'm not sufficient. And neither are you. I'm not up to the task. But God is. God is sufficient for me. God is sufficient for you. We wretched people are made sufficient by God. And in that knowledge, 
in the knowledge that we are completely unworthy and we are completely incapable. That's the sweet spot to work with God. That's the sweet spot. We have to actually come to that position of knowing that I'm completely incapable. You're right, I can't do it. But God chooses to do his work through us. And so working in that sweet spot, let's be people of integrity and sincerity. Let's recognise that we are commissioned by God. It's not only me that's commissioned by God. You're commissioned by God to be his agent in this world, to be your minister in the to be his minister in this world. You are commissioned to speak in Christ in the sight of God. Let's do that. Let's pray, hey? Heavenly Father, we just want to... Lord, we want to thank you that you are the one who makes us sufficient. Lord, we, we know that we are not sufficient to do these things. You've, you've called your disciples and... And we are your disciples. And you send us out into the world to, to preach your gospel. And even living the Christian life, Lord, who is sufficient for these things? Lord, we recognise that we are totally insufficient in ourselves. But praise be to the Lord our God, who through Jesus Christ fills us with his Holy Spirit. Lord, we want to thank you that you make us sufficient not in ourselves, but in you. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be able to, to be your ministers, um, sharing your grace and your glory and your gospel out into this world as you empower us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.